Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good, Good to morning. see you all today. The uh, section we begin this morning is a, a different section. Now, uh, Fred has been encouraging me to actually follow up on my uh, threat to give you a quiz. And it looks like he's actually, he's actually distributed paper to that end. So, number one. No. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yes. It almost under the illusion that he's the boss, you know. That he, <clears throat> but <laughs> but uh, if you remember, the first four chapters are dealing with the issue of uh, the divisions. He's done with that. Now, in chapters 5 and 6, he's dealing with, uh, and we'll just keep the Ds, disorders in the church. Now, let me uh, repeat a couple of things just by way of uh, sort of review, but to some extent introduction to this section. One of the reasons I chose uh, this for our study for, for a while is Corinth and all of the issues surrounding Corinth and a church in Corinth and all uh, surrounding Corinth as a church is very similar to America in the sense that Increasingly, the culture is very much going in the opposite direction of where our values, our morals, and our ethical standards are. That was very much the case in, in Corinth. And so the issues and problems and, would be another word, challenges are, are probably similar. The specifics might be a little bit different, but in some ways they're not. And so these two chapters, five and six, three issues come to the surface here. One which we will deal with this morning, is the issue of immorality in the church and that they're tolerating it. Second is the issue of uh, lawsuits, which is the first half of chapter 6. And uh, it's, there is a lot there for us to really process and think about because of the kind of culture in which we live. Uh, we're such a litigious society. We, we, we sue for so many different issues and reasons. And I'm not talking about criminal issues, but civil issues. And then the third one deals with sort of their worldview as it's worked out in how they live their lives, a personal morality. So that's kind of what we're going to deal with. Now, today is um, an uncomfortable chapter. Because, in a sense, what really is going on here is not the immorality they're t tolerating, but that the leadership is not disciplining. And I probably am certain that very few, if any, of your churches that you attend have ever disciplined a member. And some of you are looking at me as if you don't even really know what I'm talking about. Because it is, it's something that's taught in the New Testament, but it's something that's not practiced very widely. And it's hard, difficult. So what I want to do is raise the issue as Paul addresses it, and then go to other parts of the New Testament for just a minute, and then we'll come back to chapters uh, 5, verse 3 and following. Now, did I lose you, or are you, are you with me? Okay, so I'm trying to set this up. This is a real issue. And Paul makes some statements here that are, they almost knock your socks off the way he says it. It's so audacious and so in your face. 
Okay, what's the issue? We're in chapter 5. Uh, I've got to get where you are in your notes. If you're following in your note packet, it'll be page 8. <clears throat> it is actually reported, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That is, that is an astonishing statement, remembering that this is the Greco-Roman world of the first century. Okay, now the next part of the verse, that clause there, is one of content. It explains what the immorality is. That someone has his father's wife. Now, depending on your translation, it may even be a little more explicit, but the, the verb has is just a euphemism for immorality. He is living with his father's wife. Now, uh, the phrase, his father's wife, is a phrase that's used lots of places in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, several times. So what is really going on here is a case of incest. That's the issue. More than likely, although it, it really is not possible to prove this, more than likely, this is the divorced wife of his father. In other words, his biological mother, either he had divorced her or she died, he then remarried his mother's, uh, his, uh, his uh, present wife, who is his, she is his stepson. You following this? And so they're living together. Now, according to Greco-Roman law, that was incest. According to Jewish law, which they don't follow because they're Gentile Greco-Roman people, but nonetheless, according to Jewish law, that's incest. So the bottom line, no matter how you look at it, whether you're looking at it from the Greco-Roman perspective or whether you're looking at it from the Jewish perspective, this is a case of incest. And more than likely, it is he's living with his father's wife, whom he divorced. It seems almost impossible to believe, although I suppose it could, that his father and his stepmother are not divorced, and he's still living with her, which is even more <laughs> kind of extraordinary that, uh, that that would occur. So it's probably that situation. But again, bottom line is, it's, uh, it's an incestuous relationship. Now, what does he mean when he says... An immorality does not even exist among the Gentiles. Now, when he says it that way, what he really means, because obviously, like in any culture, there are always people breaking the taboos and the moral laws on all of that. But in, in the Greco-Roman world, it was illegal. In Greco-Roman world, that was not accepted. So Paul is really, he's really, it's a, kind of an in-your-face statement, almost incredulous. I can't believe... That's your tolerance. And when he says it the way he says it, this is a situation where this man is in their church. And possibly even the woman is, although that's not quite as certain. Now we know that because how, of how he addresses this, this man in the latter part of the chapter. Plus, he refers to a previous letter that he had written about this guy. It's what we call the lost letter, because we don't have that. So this has been an issue by this, I mean, this man and this sexually immoral relationship has been going on for some time. 
And the church leadership isn't doing anything about it. The church leadership is tolerating it. Because again, this man is in the church. We know that because of what he says in verse 9 and 10. Okay, now I saw some hands go up. Just a question. You said that they were probably living together. How, where does that where is that indicated that they're living together? I kind of read it as they're having sex. Well, uh, it's it's an it's more of an inference that this is a they're not married, but there is a whether they are actually living in exactly the same house, but they are having sexual relationship and living together. Whether they twenty four seven has is it's a euphemism. What's the uh, what's the word? Uh, it's it's uh, has uh, yeah it's it I, I don't remember the exact Greek word there it's the the word for immorality is porneia which is a very common Greek word so I mean has is like it's a little bit like what is in Hebrew and you sometimes see it in Greek gnosko yada to know to know a woman and that means to have sexual relations with her it says an Adam knew Eve you know it's just a it's kind of a euphemism. A colloquial way of saying sexual intercourse. What do you? Did you have your hand up? No. Okay. All right. Now I, I don't want to dwell on this, but you, you get the situation. So I mean, it's from what you said about verses later in the chapter. I mean, it's it's known. Exactly. It's not like this is something that's exactly. just mm-hmm. only Paul knows about. Mm-hmm. The other exactly. leaders of the church know about it. Exactly. And it had been a part of the content of a previous letter he had written to them, because he talks about that in verse 9. So this is, um, I love this word, and I'm going to use it, but this is an egregious situation. Isn't that a great word? But it really is. I mean, it's, it's intolerable for Paul. And we know that, his, that's his reaction, because if you look at verse 2, and you have become arrogant. Now, the use of the word arrogant, that we translate arrogant, means that you are, it's a defiant, I don't care what God's moral law says, kind of arrogant. Regardless of the clear moral standards that are associated with being a Christian, we don't care. And instead of mourning, which should be their response, mourning in the sense of a grievous sense, my, oh my, oh my, this young man, assuming he's younger, this young man, look at what he's doing. He's ruining his life. Let's go put our arms around him and try to rescue him. That's not what they're doing. The arrogance is a reflection of their deliberate, intentional ignoring of the situation. So here's the scenario that's probably as accurate as we can be. There's a young man, and I say young because if it's his stepmother, the assumption is that there's some distance in age there. So it's a young man in the church who comes to church as a part of the local body, living with or having intimate, regular, habitual sexual relationships with his stepmother, whether they're actually living in the same space or not may or may not be true. And the church leadership knows about it. Probably most of the people in the house churches know about it. And they're not doing anything about it. Instead of the grievous response that we should have to sin, the mourning, and not not in the sense of mourning 
like you do when you lose a loved one, but the word mourning in the sense of your response to sin, the grievous, horrific sense of what this is doing to this young man, what it's doing to that woman, and they're not doing anything. That's what has Paul upset. That this kind of sexually dysfunctional situation exists, but it existed lots of places. The issue isn't that. The issue is how's the church responding to it. Following? That's the issue. Now, it isn't the, the issue of this man and doing what he's doing isn't important, but Paul is specifically focusing on that the church is not responding to this situation. Andrew? Um, how do you see that, like, um, today in our kind of postmodern Western world, we see a lot of, like, oh, accept people for mm-hmm. who they are and what they're mm-hmm. doing, or kind of, I know a lot of people struggle with, I don't want to rock the boat, I don't know mm-hmm. how, this is obviously blatant ignorance, but how is that attitude, where is that attitude coming from, for them, when you say, um, that attitude and the attitude you see t- today is that what yeah, you know? like as, as opposed to it, or is it similar to that? I, mean, I think it's very similar to it. It's probably, and, and that's that's a great question. It's probably the the kind of attitude you often see in, in uh, the American church today is probably the same attitude you saw back then. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be confrontational. We don't want to uh, make this an issue in our body. Let's just ignore it and maybe go away. Maybe they'll start fighting and it'll end and everything will be fine. Now, that's, I don't mean to be so cynical, but in a way, that's kind of that same attitude. So I think that same attitude that I think I'm hearing you yeah. summarize is absolutely pervasive today. And I think there's another thing, particularly in North America, that you add to that. Because we are such a litigious society, there have been many, many, many churches that have been sued when they do discipline a member. Very famous law, very famous lawsuit involving half a million dollar settlement in Oklahoma over exactly the same thing. There was a woman in the church. She was shacking up with a man, not in, in the church, but in the community. And they followed, which I want to go over in a minute, they followed the procedure Jesus lays out, and this woman sued him. And she won. So, I mean, you, you face a whole other issue in our culture that adds to maybe another reason why this is so delicate. And it can be, discipline can be for anything. This happens to be the case of, of an immoral, immoral situation. So, but I want to talk about that. We have to talk about this because the, Paul alludes to this, this procedure in verses 4 and 5. But I, I want to get to that in just a minute. So I, that, I, if I, I don't know if that answers your question or is the comment, but I think that is, it's very delicate. And most of us, I mean, I'm like that. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to create the kind of tension that will create when you start dealing with something like this. Jim? Just to follow up a little bit on Andrew's question. Evidently, this individual was sort of a long-term member of this church body or maybe even a respected member of the church body. We don't know. but We don't know for sure. Been there for a while, apparently. I would assume that is correct. And the, the question here is dealing with that, but as opposed to the... I don't know what you, I mean, sort of the Bill Hybels approach, that we don't want to create any kind of a guilt mm-hmm. atmosphere, so somebody who's new coming into the church, mm-hmm. you know, could easily be in this situation or mm-hmm. some other, you know, immoral situation. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, at some point, the needle moves from 
being accepting for ministry opportunities to being accountable for not taking whatever action. Yeah. Is that, is that fair? To I think that? so. And um, this, <coughs> you are raising a whole other issue that is delicate as well. Um, how does the church leadership and the body as a whole, but the church leadership deal with a very new believer who is perhaps, and that's not unusual in our world today, comes out of a very dysfunctional lifestyle, you know, maybe drugs and alcohol and lots of loose sex and all of that, and they come to Christ. Well, they've got years of that baggage, and it's highly unlikely that they're going to be absolutely perfect and there'll be no problems. You're going to have issues. And so how do you deal with them? I think Jesus addresses that in Matthew 18, which is what I want to uh, go to for, your, for a little bit. And I, I think that is a way to deal with it, Jim. But this is delicate. I mean, this, there is no easy way to do this. So what I want to do, if you don't mind, is take you back to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 and following. And then I want to go to Galatians 6, 1, and then I want to come back to 1 Corinthians 5. So I don't know if we can do all of this in our time here this morning. But we must, we must lay some groundwork here from other parts of Scripture to understand why Paul is counseling them to do something. Because once we go back to 1 Corinthians 5, you're going to see him giving them some very strong counsel. As a matter of fact, giving them a directive. Where's he getting that? He's getting that from Matthew 18. So let's go back to that. In verse 15 of chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is the one who gives us the fullest treatment of these words of Jesus, the Lord lays down a four-step process that the church is supposed to use. And, and Jesus uses the term church in verse 16. And following. So we know he's talking about the local body, this new institution that he is about to create. Now, I'm so thankful the board is here. This is really great. Um, and I don't, one of the, the dangers of doing something like this is just like anything. You have, okay, now you have a series of bullet points and you've got to follow these. <laughs> There's lots of grace and mercy and compassion in how you deal with these things. But Jesus is laying out in a very real sense for us, a procedure for church discipline. If you don't mind me just writing this up on the board. Now, one of the things that is important here in the context, in the way the Lord is talking about this, when he uses the word sin, if a brother sins, we are to infer and understand the way he talks about this. This isn't a brother or sister in Christ where they do one sin. This is a habitual, ongoing, defiant, I don't care what God's moral law says, I am going to continue to do it type of sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there is a defiance here. And so we must infer that this man in Corinth, about whom Paul is writing, <laughs> There is a defiance in the way he's living. I don't care what you say. I don't care what God's law says. I'm going to keep living. How can anybody tell me this is wrong? I'm going to keep doing it. So we have to assume, and I think that's the only way this, all this comes together, is Jesus is making it clear to us that you're talking about someone 
who has a defiant spirit in what they are choosing to do. Almost, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do this. So that's really clear. This isn't, you see somebody jaywalking, and the next day you bring him before the board and say, we got to discipline that guy. That's obviously not what he's talking about. It's the kind of, where is it, a defiance, a rebellious spirit. And so what does he say? The first step is you go to that person and reprove that person in private. And the idea there is that, now I'll use Jim because he's to my right here. But suppose, I mean, I, I know Jim, I know him well, he used to work for me. I know a, a fair amount about him, and I see something in his lifestyle that I, I just know he's really struggling with this. But I also know he's got to confront it. He's not doing that. Now, that is not true of Jim. I'm just making that up. But, and so what I do is, because it is so serious, I go to him, hey, Jim, can you have coffee? So we go and have coffee, and I just real, real lovingly and compassionately share with him and say, Jim, this is something you've got to deal with. I am reproving him in private. And so one of the wonderful things about that is so often that ends it. The guy deals with it. Yeah, I am so. I'm so thankful. Did you really notice that? Yeah, I've been seeing that. And, and he, this happened to me I, I bet 50 times in my ministry where you confront much more than that, I'm sure. And he said that they just spill their guts, <laughs> say, yes, I am really struggling with this. I need help in this area. And there's been a defiance about it. I really, I don't care, but it's just destroying me. It's eating me up inside. I want to deal with it. Can you help me? Well, step one, you don't have to go any further. It's worked. But you see, remember, and this is what the nature of the Greek word is, the word discipline, it's the same way we use the word discipline when we talk about our children. We discipline our children not out of a punitive perspective, but out of a restorative perspective. We want to restore them. We want to change their behavior. That's what this is. Discipline is a very positive word in Scripture. And we, we actually, the, the typical word it's used, we get our word pedagogy from it. So it's a very strong, affirming, positive word. It's not negative and judgmental, which it Usually, that's negative, and that's judgmental. Well, that's not its purpose. If I go back to the, the illustration with Jim, my goal is to restore Jim. My goal is to have Jim change his behavior where he's back on track with his walk with the Lord. Because that defiant spirit in that particular area of his life is affecting everything he's doing. All right, step two. If he listened to you, you've won your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, listen to you, take one or two more with you. So, you reprove with two or three other brothers. And I mean, this, you know, this could be sisters too, you know, but yeah, just using that as the example. So you take two or three. Sometimes, now it doesn't always have to be that way. But sometimes that's two or three other leaders of the church, maybe two or three other elders or whatever. And you go as, you know, again, very, uh, I think a sense of that is a very non-threatening but 
very firm way of dealing with this. Now, Jim, um, Jim talked to you the other day, and you, you just didn't really accept that challenge very well from him. And yet, as leaders of our church, we're telling you, you, you really need to do it. And we're here to help you. We want to support you. But, Jim, you have to deal with this. Paul's going to give us some reasons in chapter 5 of why, but and we were here to help you. Okay. And he quotes, because out of the mouth of um, two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you, you're just making sure that you have two or three people to confirm that, yes, we did deal with this, we did take it, we did, we did confront him lovingly. Great. can stop there if there's a change in his behavior. And he says, I know, I, I, I'm going to end this. I can't continue like this. Can you help me? Ah, step two's work. Don't do it. But what if that doesn't work? Step three, next verse. You take it to the church. And that's a hard step. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. You know what that means? Nobody does that, though. I mean, nobody walks up the church, hey, I've been violated in some way, or some egregious statement, or maybe they stole from me. You don't have anybody coming in and talking to the pastor. You ever see that? Or heard that kind of uh, I, I, the way you're saying it, no. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it just doesn't seem like the, the modern church would even accept oh. that. Oh, know, absolutely. Okay, now I see what you're problem. saying. Oh, that's right. That's right. You know, I do know personally, I do know personally, many, many situations, because I've been involved in some of them, uh, step one and step two, and it ends up because it results in change. Right. But to go to step three is really, really... Let's say, for example, I had a problem with my brother, and I, I did step one, nothing. Step two, my, like my little brother, um, step two, went to, you know, brother my father, asked my mother to do something about it. So step three, would, would, I, would I, what just called my, you know, my church, say, hey guys, I'm going to come over here, and I want, you want you to solve something. I mean, how do they even... Well, he has to be a member of that church under... Yeah, I mean... Covering. Yeah, I mean, there are some assumptions. Go to his church? Pardon me? I would go to his church? No. Well, yeah, now, one of the things, though, uh, that is... One of the things that's true about all of this is, and that's what's in 1 Corinthians 5, this is all in the same body of believers. This isn't me, you know, I'm, I hope you understood that. Jim and I are in the same body, right. same same church. But I wouldn't, you know, well, the, the point I'm making is this is in the body, in the local body. So if your parents, or whatever you know, the scenario you were imagining, that's really an important part of this. And then that's why the two or three that's mentioned there in verse uh, 16, generally, I, I suppose it doesn't have to be, but generally they are leaders of the church that go with you or are a part of this group that are just... This is a very serious sister for our local church. And we, we're, we want you to help deal with it. We're going to help you. But you can't continue with this defiant, rebellious. You, you just can't do that. We're here to support and help you. And if, again, that defiant, I don't care what you say. Get out of my house. He's in his church. He's a, first, a member of your church. He's a part of your fellowship. And he refuses. I mean, there's a rebellious defiance about it. Continues. Then Jesus says, you take it to the church. You tell it to the church. Now that's hard because there's no, 
you know, in brackets. Now, this is exactly how you do this. But what is, what is implicit in the words of Jesus is this now becomes a public issue in the church. I don't mean you put it in the Omaha World Herald. That's not what I mean. But it's now the church, the body is involved now. Now, sometimes it's, it's hard, it's delicate, it's difficult. Sometimes something like that is a part of a congregational meeting. You don't make it a part of, in my own view, the, 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 the worst way you could do it, to make it a part of your morning worship service. That's not a wise way to handle something like this. But it's you know, part of a congregational gathering, whether it's a congregational meeting or whatever. And you do this, and it, this is where the delicacy, but the maturity and the godliness of leaders really comes to the surface. Because you cannot present this as gossip. You can't present this as some juicy bit of news about so-and-so in our church. <clears throat> You're presenting this the way Paul presents it. The integrity of the body is at stake here. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We are called to be holy, both as a body and as individuals. And this is so serious for our body, we have to make it part of the body business. And then you, you exhort your people, and I've been in situations that you exhort your people, do not make this an issue of gossip. Do not make this an issue where I'm better than you are. I'm not struggling with that, so I'm more, but that is not the attitude. The attitude is always to restore. And you make it a matter of prayer. You make it a matter of everything you possibly can to win that person back. But if step three doesn't work, then you excommunicate. You ask them to leave the body. That's harsh. It's hard. And as uh, a couple of you have commented, you don't see that today. You really don't very often. Go. Part of the issue, not to excuse it here, but be the, just the size and scope of the church today, or churches, because you're still talking about a house church here, right? Uh, typically, these would be house churches in the first so, century. So, I mean, it's, you know... Fred and I can go to the same church and hardly know each other yeah, these right. days. Right. And, and so there's a congregational meeting and says, well, Fred's, or, you know, Joel did this, and Fred's like, who's that? You know, and there's no relationship there. Is that, I mean, not that that excuses doing this today, but, I mean, that would well, be an issue, right? I think, well, it is. I mean, in, in the sense that it would, uh, what would be the right word? It would make it a little simpler to deal with because typically in a house church, a relatively small situation like this, you do, and in all likelihood, and I think it's legitimate to infer that as well, what was going on in Corinth, everybody knew about it. You know, everybody in the, the little, because these are not large churches by any stretch in, in the middle of the 50, uh, 55 or 56 when you wrote the letter. So, I mean, in, in all likelihood, they knew about it. I mean, the vast majority, if not all. So, but you are right in terms of our context. We have much larger congregations. But, Joe, I don't see anything there that where Jesus says or Paul says, don't do it. Right, right. 
but it makes it more um, uh, not only more difficult but but more um, almost weird and strange because sometimes there may be something come up. I don't even know what you're talking about. Who is this? And so what some churches have done is they've um, instead of taking it before the entire congregation, you know, they take it before the group of the larger elders and deacons together who then represent the whole body. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think there's an absolute rigid way, but you make this more of a public because it is, as he says, he, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, the entire purity of the body is at stake here. A little leaven, leaven the whole on. If you don't deal with this, then you tolerate something that can actually end up eating away at you as a body, like cancer. Like a disease that can be ultimately self-destructive. And this, that's why it is so hard for us today, because as Jim was using an example, like a you know, seeker-friendly model, you don't want to do this because you don't want to scare people away. And you know, okay. But there's a much more, and this is it's just why it is something that I'm telling you, and I know a lot of guys in ministry, they just stay away from this. They just stay away from it. Have you seen a difference between showing up and membership anymore? I mean, when I was a kid, I used to be a member of a mm-hmm. church. Somebody knew who I was. Now it's just you show up, and as long as the offering th- bucket gets full, I think I think to some extent it. Because there are so many uh, models out there of how you do church today and, and so on. But I, th- this is in God's word, man. And we can't ignore it. We have to deal with what Paul is teaching here. And we have to try to deal with what is in back of his word. And what is in back of his words are the words of Jesus here. This is the context where Paul's going to tell them what to do. And so as hard as it is, I mean, ultimately, we, and, and I don't think any of you are in top leadership of your churches, and like on board, chairman of the board, or anything like that, but ultimately, uh, these kinds of things do come in leadership situations, you, where what are we going to do about this? We have somebody in our fellowship that is blatantly and flagrantly, it could be, you know, um, someone who is fraudulently and very defiantly uh, doing things illegal. And you you become aware of it. What do you do with that? Um, Tim, you you mentioned initially when you started talking about this that you go to the person and in your heart you're really thinking, I want to really embrace them with the love of Jesus Christ. I want them to, to realize I'm not coming in judgment. I'm coming in to reconcile this person and you are you're really that way you're feeling that and you want that and you want to see that person reconciled if that continues through these steps so that the larger group that actually makes the decision can see that um, how important is that in communicating that to the rest of that leadership so when they make a decision they're making it out of love for this brother and mm-hmm. love for this church and not an attempt just to drop the anvil on them. I mean, because you've, you've done maybe 50 or more, you said, of those situations. Um, 
what, what's what's the well? How, how do you assure that as best you can with the leadership of the church? Well, in a way, you've answered your own question because it is imperative in those first two steps, particularly, and even as it goes before the larger body, that this be done out of love and compassion. And, and I, I really get this especially from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if any man is caught in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. The goal is always restoration. Whether that person accepts it or not, the goal is always restoration. It's not punitive. It's restorative. Because that is always, always, always your goal. The very, um, I'm forgetting the exact verse there, but the very end of um, the book of James, um, it's James chapter 5, but I forget the exact verse there. Um, James chapter 5, he used, those of you uh, who observe someone wandering, um, you seek to bring that person back because uh, I'm almost there. Um, verse 19 of chapter 5, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way. will save his soul. There's again that spirit of someone wandering and, and the, the word stray there is planel. It's, they get, they, they, that's how they name the planets. The ones that don't fit. They're wandering around the heavens up there. We can't figure out how they're moving. Not like the stars. And it's, I don't know why I told you all that, but that's the meaning of that word. And it's just, they're, they're wondering, they're getting off the track. What do you do? You try to bring them back. And all of that is, that's the spirit of Jesus in Matthew 18. That's the spirit of Paul in Galatians and in the spirit of James. And now in, in 1 Corinthians 5, you have a real-life situation now. The others are teaching sections. This is a real-life situation. And the Corinthian leaders aren't doing anything about it. The Corinthian leaders, and presumably the larger church, is just ignoring it. Well, I was going to I've been involved in a couple situations similar to what we're talking about. But um, one of the problems that I can see is and it really isn't addressed in scripture and that is where do you start and where do you stop with the church because every church all across the city we know we have people with family members living together uh, we have people going out and engaging in activities that are obviously against God's word so where do we start as leaders of the church and where do we stop and that's the problem I see it because now all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute. Okay, you're calling me out on this, but what about Fred? And what about him? And what about him? And what? I mean, that's the part of the answering challenge. Now, to me, I like the one-on-one, and I've done some of those. We've done some of them when I was working with leadership. And that, to me, has always been the best way because I was even involved in church where we were aware there were some people who were uh, a lesbian couple that were in the church. And our attitude was, at least I was found and I agree with the pastor. It was a small church. We were going to try to hopefully have the Holy Spirit convict them and bring them into Christ. We were not going to go up and remove them because we knew publicly that they were together. Where the pastor and I separated was when he then put them in a leadership position. 
Mm. And I said, look, you know, mm-hmm. that's a whole different animal. If we're, you know, if they're coming here and they're just coming from the screwed up, dysfunctional, <clears throat> we got to accept them. We got to love them and hope that with time and hearing the word, blah, 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 that they're going to change their ways of doing things and having to use that grace. Because if we'd have walked up and any of us would have confronted them, they'd have been gone. So our hope was, but once he started putting on leadership, I said, now you're, now you're doing a whole completely different thing. And I think that's. I think I was a pretty solid ground. Oh, I, I certainly. But, but I think I think when you're talking about leadership, I think it's one thing. But I think when you're talking about a congregation, that's my question. Where do you start? and Where do you stop? Mm-hmm. Not only that, but whenever you're in the process of stage two of the church leadership, and all of a sudden this party being approached decides to leave the church and withdraw the membership, what is your responsibility? To individual at that point. Now, from a legal standpoint, my understanding is that if you don't have it within your constitution or bylaws, that they understand and they agree to the fact that they are with the church, right. even in a disciplinary situation, Right. then if you continue to pursue them, that's where you run into trouble. That's correct. Uh, that is absolutely correct. If they make the decision to leave the church, then from your perspective, it's over. They have voluntarily made decision to leave. You should not. I, that's my understanding. It's very unwise to then try to pursue them and you know they left the church and they've moved to another. I'm making this up. Moved to another town. Or, that's it. From your perspective as the body, that's over because they've severed the connection to the local body. And you made something, Daryl, a comment which I think I understood what you were saying, and that's very wise that you have some of these kinds of things in your constitution. Because if there is is ever a legal action, you can show that this is part of, and when they became a member, they agreed to come under that authority. Uh, At our, uh, the little church I'm involved in, I've had them, because I'm sort of just advising them as part-time on the staff, but I'm making sure that, that we have all of our policies and procedures that we need to have in writing. We have a statement of human sexuality that we, so that we just are very clear, and they are public documents, and that it's very clear what we stand for. But it's, uh, I mean, we live in a society where, and, and Terry's raised an incredibly important practical, where do you start with something like this? But you see, another, let me, uh, let me make another comment about this, because these kinds of things should not occur in a vacuum. I don't know if you want to mean by that. You should be a local body where you are teaching the authority of God's word. And you're teaching the transformational truth of, 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 of God's word. And that what God is saying to us is, you're here, I want to move you here. Positionally, you're holy and righteous. But practically, you still have a lot of baggage you're dealing with. That's why it's so, I think, so imperative. We're not talking about somebody who's struggling with sin. We're talking about someone who is defiant. I don't care what you say. I am going to continue doing this. I'm sorry. I was going to say, these guys walking by are going to say, what is going on in there? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm trying to. Um, yeah, that's the <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
just, just put out the welcome mat. Yeah, anyway. We'll be meeting at MP Dodge next week. You all come. But, um, so, that being understood, that part of the ethos of your church is you are really teaching God's word. And you're, you're teaching that it is important that we come under the authority of God's word because it is his word, it's his values, his moral morality, his ethical standards. And we're being brought into conformity with those. And that takes time, it's a process. And if you're not willing to do that, then it's, this probably isn't the church for you. That's the context in which you do these kinds of things. And that's why, you know, I mean, Jesus, we sometimes forget some of that, and that's why... I struggle a little bit with some of the seeker-friendly stuff only because we are calling people into the body and coming under the authority of Christ. And Jesus said, I did not come necessarily to bring peace, but I bring a sword. It divides. The truth of the gospel divides. And Well, no, we don't want it to divide. I mean, it does divide because you are taking clear stands on things. But if you never do that, and all of a sudden, okay, we're going to discipline him. That's, that's in a context nobody understands what you're doing. Well, why are you doing that? It's arbitrary. That, no, if you've had an entire history, we teach God's word, and we are all together coming on its authority. Because this is God's revelation to us. That's what makes, then, a decision to go through a discipline then a lot more meaningful in a context where hopefully it will bring the restoration you want or the decision by that person to leave or tragically the decision where the church says it honestly is time for you to leave so I, I mean to me that's what's of utmost importance in this kind of a situation because if you just do it once and it's just out of the blue, it will be perceived as arbitrary, terribly misunderstood, and it'll probably divide the church. There is, I don't know, I, I mean, like, I've been through a lot of these things particularly, but I want to tell you a story of one that was eminently successful. And this was when I was back in Pennsylvania on staff of my uh, church that, uh, through which I'm ordained. But anyway, there was a man who was the superintendent of our Sunday school all things but it it came to um, the knowledge of the, the the elders that he was having an affair with another woman and so the 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 the, the leaders took the matthew 18 passage and just went through it and one of his close friends addressed him went to him he he was very defiant it's just amazing and they just went and asked he was actually the church but it was really interesting because a group of the men, because he was, it was one of those shock things. Everybody was shocked by it. <laughs> but a group of men uh, that were close friends of his, they made the decision, even after he was asked to leave, to keep in contact with him. Took him to lunch. You know, just, how you doing? We, we, we want you to come back, but it's got to be on terms of repentance and restoration. And the bottom line is that he... Uh, he went back to his wife. He ended the relationship with this other woman, went back to his wife. It was very, very difficult. But, and it took almost two years. But he was reconciled. He was restored. Now, he's in his late 70s now, but uh, when Peggy and I go back to the church, we we'll often see him. 
And there's an example of it working. It was hard. Oh, my goodness, that was hard. And the effect it had, you know, in so many different people's lives. But yet the long-term effect was incredibly positive. Because here you saw a man that was destroying his life. And the, the church intervened and rescued him. And I think that's the right way to say it. Rescued him. And, uh, and God in his grace brought him back. And, and so, you know, you want to think that it always will work that way. And that's probably more the exception than the rule. And it's even more so today to some extent because of just the attitude people have. And, the, you know, the postmodern autonomy. I'm kind of a law unto myself. You can't tell me what to do. And that's why it is so, it's absolutely imperative that we make that part of the culture of our church. That this is God's word. And we're going to all come under its authority and we're going to work together in the process of sanctification because we're being transformed, all of us. We're in this together. And I, when you create that kind of ethos, it's much easier. Maybe I shouldn't say that. It, when you create that kind of culture, then this kind of situation is going to be a little bit more easily understood and hopefully it can accomplish. The group I'm involved with now in our church, we, we've been dealing with two guys and um, it's just something to, to watch. How they, they, they understood and they've agreed to come under the authority of God's word in our local body, but they're still wrestling with these issues that have divided them and have caused some terribly bitter things to happen but uh, we have a meeting tomorrow morning on it again and at breakfast and it's just but God's at work in these guys lives and there's not that defiance but they're they're allowing the local church to help them work through these things rather than it becoming explosive because it involves sin it's not immorality or anything like that but it's really it's really neat to see that way is it easy no so I mean, it's just really, this is a delicate thing. And it's, it's so foreign to us, typically, because you just don't hear much about it. Andrew. Can you comment on, you know, I, I, I grew up in a church that, um, in re- retrospect, looking back at the Book of Order, was surprised to find so much dis- like, on discipline in the Book of Order because nothing ever happened uh, that I can see. Sure. Sure. And now I'm at a church where it's it's they take it very very seriously. They take membership very very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge difference that I saw, or that I've seen between those two churches, is the I don't know if I call it active presence, if not not being passive presence of men in leadership, mm. and a very. Um, manly stance, you might say, by the, the leadership of my current church, uh, where they don't mess around with this. Mm. They're not passive when something like this comes about. Mm. And it was kind of shocking seeing that difference, yeah. being so used to this yeah. and coming to that. And, and I struggled with it initially, but but they're very gospel-centric in how they explain the process and mm-hmm. how they bring it to mm-hmm. the, the greater body and say, this person is now no longer in fellowship with keep praying for them, keep contacting right. them. But right. Can you comment on our responsibility as guys um, uh, to not be passive uh, and, be, and, and how that's biblical? 
Because it'll mean a lot more. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to have to stop a little early here. I'm <laughs> Andrew, wow. You started it. I know. I know. Uh, no more Matthew 18. <laughs> In one sense, that's, uh, that's another issue. But, but it's connected to this one very, very, very definitely. Let me just make two comments, and then we'll, we'll see if that generates any more discussion or question. But um, that is one of the clear, clear teachings of God's Word. And this is, a, in this 21st century, this is one of the most difficult things to say, and it's like going against everything. And but it is that God is um, very serious about men taking primary responsibility for leadership. And notice how I said that, primary responsibility for leadership. That doesn't mean women are not involved in leadership positions. But like, you, you look at, for example, how the Lord uh, deals with the issue of who is accountable for the fall into sin of the human race. Genesis 3, you have Eve taking the, the fruit. But the strong, the strong sense of that text is Adam is right next to her. He's not in South 40, 25 miles away. He's right next to her. He's very passive. And the hint of that, the truth of that, is in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 where the Apostle Paul is talking about the entrance of sin into the world and the rebellion of the human race. And Eve isn't mentioned at all in that chapter. Adam is mentioned. By one man, Adam, sin entered. What was that passage? Romans 5.12. And so you get another way to look at that is you go to Genesis chapter 2 where God gives his moral law to Adam. And he says, Adam, here's what I want you to do. And then you go to Genesis 3, and Adam doesn't do what he was supposed to do. And so God holds him accountable. And so in a, I, when I do my premarital counseling with, with uh, people, and I mean, I, the wonderful privilege I've had over the years to marry, uh, have, conduct ceremony and counseling with a lot of our students. It's a neat thing to be able to do. But it is, it is imperative in it that you, you put on the shoulders of that young guy the understanding that God regards you as the primary responsible leader of your home. Now, what does that mean? What well, doesn't mean you do everything, but it means that God will hold you responsible if something, something goes wrong. I mean, in my home, my, uh, with, in, in my family, my, my wife, Peggy does the checkbook. I mean, I don't even know how much we have. I and mean, she's an accounting person. She'd love to do that. When we were first married, I did the checkbook, and within four months, we overdrafted three times. I mean, you know, what kind of insanity is that? She loves to do this, but I'm the man. I'm going to do it. I don't care about numbers. I hate numbers. I've always hired people that know what they're doing because I don't. And I mean, it's just, and so, but I'm responsible. Peggy does it because she does it so effectively and so efficiently. It's just a ridiculous example, but it's what I'm talking about. And so... Andrew, in the church, the same thing, primary responsibility falls on the shoulders of the men. That doesn't mean women aren't involved. I don't see anything in the Bible that says women can't be on staff. I think senior teaching pastor, that may be a, a, an issue where I think there's a dividing line. But 
These are very difficult things to talk about in our culture today. You can hardly have a conversation like I'm sharing right now because people push back and say, oh, you're the old rabbinic teaching. That's old. We don't follow that anymore. Okay, but that seems to be how the Bible presents it. And the, the most difficult thing in terms of the impact and result is very, very, very passive men. That do you rarely see that as a positive in scripture? So, I mean, that's my answer to what you're saying. Man, it's almost ten of we've got to quit. Uh, oh my goodness, this I just didn't quite turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out, but that's okay, guys. This is in God's word, so I just I, at th- first I thought we'd skip chapter five and just go right into chapter six. <laughs> But I didn't think we would do that because Woody would ask a question, why are you skipping chapter 5? Then I would have to answer the question. <laughs> so, uh, but tomorrow we'll finish this. The, uh, by, uh, uh, by that I mean looking at verse 2, uh, verse 3 through 13. And Paul gives two reasons, two foundational reasons why it's important to take these things seriously. Lord, we're thankful for this time. This is difficult stuff. God, if I said anything that was not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds, but help us instead to focus on the things that truly are of your spirit, that we've truly reflected what the Word of God is teaching. Uh, We've had a lot of different uh, connecting points of discussion. I trust that they've all honored you and that what we've said and and the way we presented it has been accurately reflecting and summarizing what's in your Word. These are delicate and difficult things to talk about, and they're so counter-cultural because we hardly ever hear these kinds of discussions. But it's a part of your revelation to us, and we have to come to terms with it. So as we continue to process this, ask for your spirit to enable us and help us. Now be with these guys. They are so busy. They've got so many responsibilities, lots of pressures. Give them your peace. Give them your comfort. And what they live and say today, help them to represent you well in Christ's name.